KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The vaccination deadline for healthcare workers is today. I don't want to lose any employees. I mean, you know, you'll hear from every healthcare organization, we have a lot of staffing shortages right now. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A disturbing incident at Valhalla High results in a staff member transfer. So my message to the student is this. I'm sorry, this should not have happened. Questions remain about a police restraint device called the RAP, and our five song segment celebrates Latino musicians during Hispanic Heritage Month. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California's vaccine mandate for healthcare workers has arrived. Employees of hospitals, nursing homes, doctor's offices, clinics, and other medical facilities have until today to get at least one dose of the COVID vaccine or lose their jobs. Here in San Diego, most hospitals report their staff vaccination rates are in the 90% range, but there are still hundreds of healthcare workers who remain unvaccinated. Local hospitals have developed policies that would allow those workers back if they finally decide to get their shots. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Now, how have hospitals been gearing up for this deadline? Have they seen an increase in workers getting their shots? Yeah, systems have been, you know, working on some contingency plans should a lot of staff not get those shots. But, you know, really just in the last couple of weeks, um, you know, go back, there was thousands of workers who had still not done it. But we've seen a a very large increase. Um, For example, when this mandate was first announced in early August, um, Sharp Healthcare said they had 5,000 unvaccinated employees. And now that's down to just the hundreds. So uh, really seeing a lot of people coming into compliance here sort of at the last minute. And can you give us some statistics on how many unvaccinated workers there are in various hospitals around San Diego? So the vast majority of workers are getting vaccinated, but there are still hundreds that are not, or, or they don't have any approved exemptions, whether that be medical or religious. Um, so starting with some of the largest healthcare systems, so Sharp Healthcare, 18,000 employees. Right now they have 480 who are not vaccinated and do not have any approved exemptions. Uh, Scripps, there's about 16,000 employees. They have about 140 who fit into that non-compliant category. Um, and then we're seeing some high vaccination rates around uh, the county. You know, UC San Diego Health, really very high. 
98% of staff there fully vaccinated. Palomar Health is about 90% of employees are vaccinated or have uh, one of those approved exemptions. And, you know, I think the majority of the major health systems are all reporting north of 90% of staff are either fully vaccinated or have one of those exemptions. And what is the criteria for getting an exemption? It can be vague. So we know that there's religious exemptions and there's medical exemptions. So medical exemptions can be easy. You know, that can even be somebody who, uh, you know, is going through a pregnancy right now or maybe has some underlying condition or where, where they can't get it. Um, religious exemptions is where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, you know, talking to an attorney it really hasn't been tested in the courts. And so, you know, systems can have staff fill out a form that says, you know, this is my religious belief. Um, and they can choose whether to, you know, accept that or deny that. Um, you know, at Sharp Healthcare, for example, um, they told us that they're being extremely liberal in approving those. Um, so that's sort of the process of how that works. I think it still sounds strange to many of us that hundreds of healthcare workers, healthcare workers who spend their days around medical science would resist getting a vaccine. What kinds of reasons do they give? You know, we are seeing some trends. Um, you know, not a lot of systems are, you know, wanting to talk about this on the record, but Sharp and Scripps have been uh, pretty forthcoming. And they're saying that they're seeing a trend of people who are citing, um, you know, using old fetal cells and the testing of the vaccines. That's like the number one thing that they're seeing. Um, and, you know, one, one thing to note, too, is that places like Scripps are reaching out to the attorney general's office, asking for more guidance ab about these exemptions, these religious exemptions. Um, and at Scripps specifically, they're giving temporary uh, exemptions. So that that means that, you know, if the AG's office says, hey, this is a, what qualifies as a bona fide uh, religious exemption, those could later be rescinded. You spoke with Scripps CEO Chris Van Gorder, and he says Scripps Health will terminate unvaccinated workers. Tell us about that. Yeah, so at Scripps Health specifically, they have about 140 employees who aren't vaccinated and do not have one of those religious exemptions. And their policy regarding the mandate is those not in compliance will be let go at the end of today at Thursday. Um, now, but there is going to be a 30-day window. So once they're let go, they're going to be terminated today, and then they have 30 days to sort of get in compliance. So that's either getting a religious exemption or getting fully vaccinated. And if that happens, then they'll be returned back to full status. Uh, but, you know, letting go of staff is not easy, especially right now, as Scripps CEO Chris Van Gorder explained to me. I don't want to lose any employees. I mean, you know, you'll hear from every healthcare organization, we have a lot of staffing shortages right now. And we know that a lot of places are hiring. Scripps is hiring for many positions. But, you know, keep in mind, it's also tough because it's very hard to bring in travel nurses right now. They're in very, very high demand. And the ones that these systems can find, they're having to offer incentives like extra pay and benefits. Now, some hospitals here have decided not exactly to fire unvaccinated employees right away. Are they putting those workers on some sort of leave? Yeah, majority of the systems are, are, are putting employees on leave and then, you know, giving them some time to sort of get in compliance. Obviously, Scripps is sort of doing it a little bit uh, the other way around, just sort of terminating and then giving them a chance to get in compliance. Um, so like at Kaiser, for example, um, those not in compliance will have uh, will be put on up to 60 day unpaid leave. And if they get in compliance, you know, they're welcome back um, at Palomar Health and Sharp Healthcare. Um, it's going to be a 30 day unpaid leave for those uh, not in compliance. And I spoke to the chief operating officer at Sharp Healthcare, Brett McLean, this morning. He says, as it stands about right now, hundreds of employees will be being put on unpaid leave. We've got about uh, 480 or so uh, right now who have not been vaccinated or have a, uh, an exemption uh, in place. Uh, so uh, as of tomorrow, uh, they will go on administrative leave. We'll work with them as much as we can over the next 30 days uh, to get them vaccinated if they so choose. 
And it's it's worth to keep in mind, you know, many of these systems, they say, hey, look, we have J&J, Johnson & Johnson, the single dose uh, vaccines on hand. So there's still time uh, for them to get vaccinated today and be in compliance so that, that they don't go on unpaid leave or they're not terminated at the end of the day today. Since kids can't get vaccinated yet, the situation over at Rady Children's Hospital is slightly different, and that hospital is taking a harder line on workers who've asked for a vaccine exemption, isn't it? They are. You know, Rady's officials have made the determination that unvaccinated workers can no longer be in a role uh, that involves uh, patient contact, as they describe it. Um, basically saying that's because a large portion of their patients are unvaccinated. So we're talking about kids who are under 12. Uh, officials say there that that accounts for about 75% of the minors that they see and work with. Um, and basically, they're offering uh, non-compliant employees, those unvaccinated, those that don't have these exemptions, uh, roles that do not involve patient care and or they're going to be putting them on a short-term leave of absence. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. When a staff member placed his knee on the neck of a student to break up an altercation at Valhalla High School last month, there was outrage from the community and calls for his termination. Now, an independent investigation of the incident has concluded, and the Grossmont Union High School District is assessing recommendations. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has been covering this story and joins us with more. M.G., welcome. Good afternoon. So first, remind us the details of the incident that led to the need for this investigation. The incident happened on August 31st, just about a month ago, on campus at Valhalla High School in the outdoor lunch area. Two uh, young ladies got into a fight, and there was a campus supervisor who intervened. Um, The campus supervisor is a white man, and the young lady that he tried to get to stop fighting is African-American. And what played out next is the uh, video that was shared so much on social media and caused so much concern because of its similarity to the situation with George Floyd in Minneapolis. And the community, uh, as you mentioned, reacted strongly to the incident. Tell me more about that. Probably because of the, the comparison to George Floyd and that horrific incident that occurred in Minneapolis. In fact, many people promoted and, and pushed this meme where it is George Floyd and it is the uh, student who uh, was involved in the incident. So those visuals are very disturbing. And, uh, and I think ultimately um, that's what caused such a commotion and rightfully so. Uh, when this happened. Here's Grossmont Union Superintendent Teresa Kemper reacting to the findings of the investigation. As a district, we own what's in this report. We have a board policy in place to prevent this from happening, but our training, as robust as it was, needed to be stronger. So my message to the student is this, I'm sorry, this should not have happened. So, so what was the investigator's recommendation in terms of the employee who put his knee on the neck of a student? So I want to point out that the investigator uh, was a gentleman named Dominic Quiller, who is from a Los Angeles law firm, an outside entity that investigated this. So this was nothing internal. It was from the outside in the hopes that we would get the true uh, story. And the investigator had several uh, recommendations. Uh, Probably the most important is the uh, employee involved lacked training. 
Uh, there is a uh, deficiency in training, according to his investigation, and so that needs to be uh, improved. He also recommended that the employee be transferred out of Valhalla High School, which he was. And there was mention that there are other employees, although we don't know who they are specifically, that also need additional training to support situations like that. And finally, he said students need sensitivity training. And we know from the video that the superintendent released that that uh, has already begun on campus. Hmm. So what can you tell us about the victims uh, in this incident? Unfortunately, because of confidentiality, we don't know much. We do know the victim was a female. We know that she was African-American. We also know that she was in foster care and and, uh, that the guardian who uh, was taking care of her at the time is the one that became aware of the situation and ultimately reported it. At this point, though, that's all we know. Uh, We don't know where she is right now. Um, but we do know uh, that uh, Child Protective Services were part of this investigation. And what do we know about the employee? Uh, All we know about him is that he's been transferred. Uh, The school district um, has handled this uh, case through video uh, response and written statements, so we have not been able to have additional questions answered like, where has he been transferred to? Uh, But at this point, we know that he is not uh, at the high school. What's his background? Uh, What we know is that he was a retired sheriff's deputy, um, and uh, he had been a well-known campus supervisor uh, for some time at the high school. Mm, And despite what many in the community says appears obvious, the investigator said he did not find evidence that the incident was racially motivated. What led the investigator to that conclusion? Simply because of all of the interviews that he uh, conducted, uh, and it just really does appear that uh, ignorance on the part of the campus supervisor was a big part of this. And uh, it seems to you and me and maybe many people that this would be obvious that you don't put your knee on the neck of someone when trying to restrain them. And we should also point out that the um, superintendent did say it was a clear violation of uh, their restraint policy. So uh, for whatever reason, he did what he did. And uh, now the district is hoping that it never happens again. Were there any other findings or recommendations that stood out to you within this report? I will say that I am very impressed by how the district responded. Uh, This incident happened just about a month ago, and already there was a complete investigation. It is rare that you actually get an apology in a case like this, which clearly the superintendent did, and also asked, you know, forgiveness in the sense that this uh, victim, this young victim, had been violated in this way. Uh, We also know that they're taking action, and so many people who have protested situations like this have said, we want action. And at least from what we have learned through this videotape, uh, that action seems to be underway. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. 
Earlier this month, the family of Earl McNeil reached a settlement with National City and the San Diego County Sheriff's Department following McNeil's in-custody death back in 2018. During his arrest, McNeil was placed in a restraint device called the wrap, which binds the legs and wrist. In addition, officers placed two spit hoods and a shirt over the head of McNeil, a move that was deemed a violation of procedure by the San Diego County's Citizen Law Enforcement Review Board, also something the medical examiner said contributed to his death. As of now, the family of Earl McNeil still has an active lawsuit filed against the maker of the device that was used to restrain him. The continued use of such devices raises questions over the restraint tactics used by officers who responded to the scene, as well as the tactics that law enforcement officers continue to employ across the country. Joining me now with more is Carl Takei, a policing expert and the senior staff attorney of ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. With the litigation against National City and the San Diego Sheriff's Department closed, um, how do you look back on this case? I mean, what could have been done differently to avoid the death of Earl McNeil? Well, the first is how the police responded when he first walked into the police station and asked for help. I think it's shocking that their response when somebody comes in and says, I'm high and is in distress, that they would then turn to arresting him instead of investigating options for providing medical attention. The family still has an active suit filed against the makers of the restraint uh, used on Earl McNeil. Have you seen lawsuits before that successfully take on the manufacturers of police restraint equipment? I don't recall any specifically targeting the makers of the equipment, but it's important to remember that any kind of restraint, whether it is you know, a flexible Velcro device like this one or restraint chair like many jails often use, comes with inherent risks. And, you know, even in situations where the maker of the restraint says that, you know, it, it doesn't restrict breathing if you, you know, leave it wrapped around the lower body, that doesn't eliminate the risk of death. Are there any cases that you've litigated that bear similarities to what happened with Earl McNeil? The Monterey County Jail actually is one suit that I was involved in. It involved a whole range of issues in that jail. And one of them involved the use of restraint chairs and the fact that they were using them in circumstances that were not justified, you know, based on the risk involved in using the restraint chair and, uh, you know, that they were not monitoring people once they were in the restraint chairs to make sure that uh, they were not going into medical distress. And let's talk about the device, that restraint that was used in the arrest of Earl McNeil. Just to recap, this is a system that binds the legs and wrists while someone is sitting upright. Is this tactic commonly used by police officers? I mean, there are a whole range of different restraint devices that are marketed to law enforcement agencies. Uh, this is one of them. And, you know, it, it's the practices vary from department to department in large part because the makers of these devices just market them at conferences uh, or, you know, or through meetings of individual sheriffs and police chiefs. So there's not a lot of uniformity. Have there been other lawsuits associated with this kind of restraint? You know, I'm not terribly familiar with this particular brand of restraint, but in general, yes, there have been a lot of lawsuits around the country involving various different kinds of restraints, again, because of the inherent risks of uh, putting somebody in restraints, especially 
when they're under the influence of substances, when you know they have an underlying medical condition that makes it more dangerous, uh, you know things can go wrong very quickly, and the restraints exacerbate that. What about chemical restraints, such as the case with Elijah McLean in Colorado, who was injected with ketamine by paramedics? Yeah, you know the Elijah McLean case is disturbing on a number of levels because. When you're talking about chemical restraints, that is injecting somebody with a substance that uh, can have really unpredictable effects. And um, it, it's when it's done against the person's will, that's a severe invasion of bodily autonomy, and it can carry very serious risks. Um, and you know, paramedics and other medical professionals should um, really be exercising their own judgment about whether you know, injecting somebody against their will is consistent with medical ethics guidelines, whether it's medically appropriate and not just doing it because a police officer says so. Do you think the use of restraints in general is dangerous? And if so, what policy changes are you advocating for in regards to their use? You know, again, these, you know, the use of restraints carries inherent risks. So um, they should not be used if there is any other alternative available and if they are used, then um, there needs to be very close monitoring of what's going on, um, you know, because, again, these the signs that somebody's medical distress is starting or getting worse are not things that uh, a layperson or a police officer uh, might be able to notice in time. Um, and, and so it just it creates a very dangerous situation. I've been speaking with Carl Takei, a policing expert and the senior staff attorney at ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. More information is being developed from KQED's continuing investigation, Dangerous Air. Today, we explore how some Californians are coping with the smoke created by wildfires and why the smoke hits some parts of the state harder than others. KCRW's Kaylee Wells reports. Open it up. Adrienne Vincent is opening an air purifier in her home. If this gets the smaller parts, the smallest of particles. This is for uh, carbon. She's been selling them for 25 years, and she's gotten a lot more business lately. September, the start of wildfire season in Southern California, has become a big month for her. Because that's when people line up to get machines because they can't breathe. Arlene Fleck has started to see that change at her home in Irvine. We found the number of smoke days has tripled to 30 days every year. She says when it gets bad, she has a hard time breathing and gets headaches. It's gotten to the point where we have fires so much that even like when we have fog, I'm like, okay, is that smoke now or is that fog? Last year, Fleck evacuated her home not because of wildfire, but because of the smoke that seeped through the walls of her home. The smoke in Irvine was pretty typical for Southern California. In L.A., the average days of smoke per year jumped from 9 to 32. The smoke was especially incessant in Malibu and Brentwood, home to some of the most destructive fires here, and Castaic, which is a rural community surrounded by dry brush. Health experts say that jump to a month of smoke every year can damage everything, including your lungs and your heart. NPR's California Newsroom found in 2018 
there were 30,000 more hospitalizations for cardiac and respiratory issues statewide than just two years before. If the smoke in Southern California sounds bad, our analysis found it gets even more persistent as you head north. Fleck had to shoot a movie in Stockton recently, and she said the ash falling from the sky was great ambiance for her horror film, but not great for breathing. It was uh, pretty rough while I was up there, and I felt so bad for them. I'm like, how do they do this all the time? Like, for us, you know, we have them, but it's nowhere like it has been up there. We found people in Stockton breathe wildfire smoke for 60 days every year on average. Go even farther north, and some communities are exposed to smoke for 90 days. So why isn't Southern California getting quite as much smoke? UCLA environmental science professor Michael Jarrett has part of the answer. The fuel load is much greater in Northern California because of the type of vegetation they have. In other words, the fires here usually burn fast through dry grasslands and shrubs. Northern California has big, tall trees that burn a lot longer, releasing more smoke for each acre burned. So when those large trees start to burn, they put off more emissions. And although we do get very severe wildfires in Southern California, the fuel load, if you think about it on a per acre basis, is much less. Oftentimes it's less than a tenth of what you would see if you're up in a very large uh, forest with a lot of uh, conifers. Plus, much of Southern California includes desert and urban sprawl, so there's not nearly as many flammable acres as up north. So even if Chaparral is notorious for burning fast and threatening homes, there is an upside. It creates a lot less smoke than the redwoods and pine forests up north. And the result is that here in L.A., we're only breathing smoke one month out of the year. I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. A recent survey found most Americans greatly overestimate how many veterans have PTSD. Two-thirds of survey respondents believe it's more than half, but the real number is fewer than one in five. As Chris Hexel reports for the American Homefront Project, the misperception can lead to problems for veterans with and without post-traumatic stress disorder. Brogan Farron spent 28 years in the Army. She was a helicopter pilot and deployed to combat zones and on peacekeeping missions before she retired three years ago. Now she's a professional organizer, and she finds that sometimes people in the civilian world are curious about her past life. They, they all want to thank you for your service. But then the next unanswered question is, are you okay? You know, can, can I talk to you without you, you know, getting mad? She gets it. People in the civilian world might not know many veterans. If their perception is driven by what they see on TV or online, they might associate the military with severe PTSD. You know, people have a perception that all of us, that we all have PTSD at the most severe level. And I don't really think that people understand that it's, it's a graduated scale just like almost everything in life. It's sort of a catch-22. If we ignore PTSD, people might not get the help they need, but over-dramatizing it can create a stigma. I don't think they show enough of the middle of the road or the well-treated PTSD. And I'm concerned in the long term that that will hurt the working prospect of veterans. It's pretty common for people to assume veterans have PTSD. 
Tracy Neal Walden is a clinical psychologist and chief clinical officer at Cohen Veterans Network. She says many patients describe awkward questions about combat. And when people find out Neil Walden deployed overseas with the Air Force, she gets that question herself. There's always an assumption that you've seen or done something horrific. Through surveys, Cohen Veterans Network has found that Americans overestimate how many veterans experience PTSD and whether people with PTSD are dangerous. And they underestimate how treatable the disorder is. I'm not surprised that there's misinformation But the degree of individuals, the percentage of individuals who believe this was extremely surprising and really disheartening. Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America is an advocacy group that focuses in part on mental health. Hannah Sinaway, a vice president there who is also a professional counselor, has spoken with thousands of veterans. She describes the stigma around veterans and PTSD as extreme which means some people they meet might fear them just because they served. And it also creates difficulties and barriers for the individuals who are struggling, right? You know, do you feel comfortable talking about this with your friends and family in your community? You know, sometimes not. At IAVA, she's helped run a program called QRF. That's military terminology for quick reaction force. And in this case, QRF is a hotline that veterans who need mental health care can call 24 hours per day. In the last two weeks of August, calls to the hotline were up 70 percent. And the vast majority of those folks were calling as a direct result of what was happening in Afghanistan and their kind of personal feelings, um, feelings of stress and sorrow and confusion. Um, So we definitely saw a very notable uptick um, in the veteran community of of people struggling and and reaching out for help. She says the volume of calls is, of course, disheartening. But if there's a silver lining, it's the fact that so many people are willing to reach out when they need help. Some veterans might be wary of walking into a doctor's office to talk about mental health. So if the first step is a phone call or text message, that's okay. I'm Chris Haxel in Kansas City. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Tonight, Gaslight Steampunk Expo returns to an in-person convention at the Mission Valley Marriott Hotel. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the event with its chair and director of programming, Anastasia Hunter, who also explains what steampunk is. Anastasia, first of all, explain what steampunk is. The easiest way to define steampunk, I find, is using Victorian science fiction. A lot of people are familiar with H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. And as much as in the time period, steampunk as a word didn't exist, they wrote what were called scientific romances. You know, steampunk is really a subgenre of science fiction. And we have a long tradition of science fiction conventions here in San Diego. And once it was discovered that we could dress up and have all of our fun and make things, it really took off locally. So we've been doing it for a number of years now. And what is the Gaslight Steampunk Expo? So we're going to be hosting a three and a half day convention. We're going to have a lot of programming, a lot of it themed to our theme this year, which is the 1889 World's Fair in Paris, where they built the Eiffel Tower. So since we have a bunch of makers that are part of our community, we also host a bunch of workshops. We have a vendor hall. So a lot of things that you would normally do at separate events we decided to kind of gather all together and lots of costuming as well. So don't be surprised if you show up in street clothes and you're like, wow, a lot of people are in costumes. It's totally okay. We, everyone's welcome. You don't have to have a costume. And explain what people can expect from the expo in terms of panels or vendors or what they're going to get if they come on any particular day. Our entire programming schedule is online right now. So if you go to our website, you can check it out. Some of the fun things that are unique to a steampunk convention is we have some silly competitions where we have like, for example, teapot racing. So on Saturday, you would get an RC car that has to fit like certain, you know, specific lengths and heights. And we have an obstacle course and it's whoever has the best time. Um, With two of our judges who have long been with us, uh, Madame Askew and the Grand Arbiter, make it a very spectator sport, even if you're not competing, just to listen to them describe how the racing is going. There'll be special obstacles that'll be themed for the event. They also host tea dueling, which is the only sport where you're guaranteed a cup of tea and a biscuit for every participant. So one thing about steampunk is it seems that people enjoy creating their own props and costumes. So will there be any kind of do-it-yourself workshops or seminars about how to make costumes? A number of our workshops actually discuss different aspects of ways that you can integrate certain technology into your costume. Um, It's unfortunately already sold out, but we actually have a leather plague mask class that we are offering actually on Friday, which of course is a huge hit. They're going to bring extra kits along with them. They also have a teacup holster where you can travel around with your teacup in case you, somebody suddenly, you know, challenges you to a duel, can whip your teacup out and you have it with you, but you can always stop in and see what they're doing. And a lot of these people are also in the community. So they're always happy to share what they're doing. Something else that we're going to be doing is uh, how to make your own fairy light bottle. And the technology is available online, so you can order it. But sometimes it helps to see how somebody puts something together to really make sense of what you're doing. And then we offer, you know, we call them make and takes. So they're free for everyone. You don't have to pay to anything extra. You know, once you come to the event and you buy your ticket, we have something where you can, make, you know, decorate your own little Eiffel Tower since that's part of our theme this year. 
And the first one's free. And if you want to do more than one, it's like a dollar for each additional one. And we provide all the supplies, our teachers, you know, bring all of their supplies for the workshops. And then we have free time in the evening and you want to sit with other crafty people and work on your projects you didn't finish. We've got time set aside in the evening, although we have a lot of evening activities as well, including uh, live music. I know the vintage dance people are very excited to come be part of the community and have actively always encouraged us um, to dance properly, but steampunks tend to be more rebellious than that. So there's a lot of freestyling out on the dance floor. Well, since you brought up plague masks, I might as well ask, are there any kind of COVID restrictions or safety guidelines going on? Thank you for asking. In fact, someone sent me a beautiful brocade plague mask for myself. Yes, we are instituting that there's a mandatory mask policy while inside all of the indoor spaces in the event. We're going to be less than a thousand people, so we don't need to necessarily check people's vaccination cards, but we want everyone to be safe and and we will have masks on site if you don't you know, remember to bring one or, but we just need you to just make sure it's a mask that covers your nose and your mouth and leave it on while you're indoors. If you need to go outside, the San Diego Mission Valley Marriott has beautiful grounds and you can go outside and air out as needed. And if people are interested, where can they find more information? Um, Please visit our website. We've got all kinds of information online. It's at uh, www.gaslightexpo.org. And that's where you can buy tickets and you can find information if it's your first time and information about teapot racing and our dances and live music. There's lots of great information online. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the Gaslight Steampunk Expo. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Anastasia Hunter. Gaslight Steampunk Expo runs tonight through Sunday at the Mission Valley Marriott Hotel. This month, we're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month in our Five Songs Music Picks. We'll spotlight five musicians and bands in the region who are either performing this month or just released new music. There's a broad range of styles coming out of the Latinx music scene in our region. And joining us to walk us through the playlist is KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Maureen. And Midday Edition producer, Harrison Patino. Hi, Harrison. Hello, Maureen. Good to be here. So let's start with Julia. Your first pick is Stars by Tijuana band Junipero. Let's take a listen. So Junipero is an indie dream pop band. They're based in Tijuana, and it's a duo, but they'll perform with a full band sometimes. And their sound is just super earnest, full of layered melodies and and vintage guitar sounds. Kind of has a beach house vibe to me. They put out a five-track EP, self-titled, last April, and it is absolutely gorgeous. And, And from this EP, a standout track for me is this one, Stars. It's sweet and hopeful, but a little bit tragic too. I love the line, stars will guide you back to my arms. Definitely checks all the boxes for me. Rich songwriting and a really lush and dreamy sound. And they 
also recently released a live session on YouTube that is absolutely worth a listen. They play a beautiful version of Stars on that too. And their social media posts suggest that they are recording new music right now too. That's Stars by Tijuana dream pop duo Junipero. Up next, we have the Logan Heights-based surf punk trio Beach Goons. And Harrison, you say there's a melancholy to the energy of this band. Yeah, that's right, Maureen. So Beach Goons is the brainchild of Pablo Cervantes, who's been the group's sole member since the band's inception. Their early work consisted of a lot of lo-fi, rough-around-the-edges garage rock, but has since mellowed out and matured a little bit, which isn't to say that their newer tracks don't still have that same frenetic energy of their earlier work. Their music still retains the fast pace and jangly guitar accompaniment that we see in a lot of surf punk today, but also has this distinct mournfulness and introspection from a songwriting perspective. The band performs songs in both English and Spanish, and on the Spanish side, I really like a track from their delicately named 2018 album Hoodrat Scumbags. It's on the softer side of their repertoire, and it really captures these themes of sadness and youthful disillusionment that runs through a lot of their music. Here's the track, Chunti. That's Chunti by Logan Heights' very own Beach Goons, who you can see live at the Observatory on October 7th. And out this week, a new remix of Latin pop artist Gabby Aparicio's song Corazon, remixed by Nine Theory. Julia, tell us about Gabby Aparicio and the story of this track. Yeah, it's a it's a brand new remix of a 2019 track. So uh, Gabby Aparicio is a pretty hardworking performer. It seems like she's constantly performing shows around town. Her family is from Uruguay, and she was raised in Florida, moving to San Diego about seven years ago. And she was nominated for a 2020 San Diego Music Award for her album La Bella Vita for the Best World Music category. And I, I really enjoyed that album. It really shows off her range. There sounds the seamless mix of Latin influence and pop structures, and her voice is fantastic. She sings this track, Corazon, in Spanish, but she does sing some of her music in English, too. No pides perdón por tus labios Que me dan besos y besos de más So Corazon was on that 2019 album, and this remix gives it a pretty chill house or electronic spin. This is producer Nine Theory, who, who worked on the remix, and it just dropped a few days ago. I really like how true to the original this remix is. It maintains a lot of the delicacy and the quiet groove, but just ramps it up a bit. And Gabby has a bunch of performances in town this month, including as part of Little Italy Art Walk. That's this Sunday at 11 a.m. for her performance.
Okay, we've been listening to the Nine Theory remix of Gabby Aparicio's Corazon. Harrison, moving now to a mainstay of San Diego's Latin music scene, tell us about the San Diego Latin Jazz Collective. Well, Maureen, as you can probably imagine, the San Diego Latin Jazz Collective deals in, you guessed it, Latin jazz. Although it's kind of not really easy to capture what you can expect from a typical show with just those two words. The genre itself is steeped in so many different music styles and traditions, from samba to bossa nova, and a lot of its DNA comes from the music of Cuba and Brazil. That said, it's hard to overstate just how great Latin jazz sounds in person. Cacophonous horn sections combined with driving rhythm and percussive elements make live shows a must-see. The San Diego Latin Jazz Collective performs really lively renditions of the classics of the genre that are so popular for a reason. Here's their rendition of the Son Cubano classic, Chan Chan. Chan by the San Diego Latin Jazz Collective, who can be seen live every Thursday, tonight included, at Tin Roof in the Gas Lamp. And finally, Ramona Mesqua, known as Bostich from the legendary electronic music group Nortec Collective, will perform a DJ set as part of the Front Gallery's 15-year anniversary celebration in October. And along with singer Ruben Albaran, they produced a track in 2020. Julia, tell us about these artists and about Convinsame. Yeah, let's start with Ramon Amesqua, otherwise known as Bostich. This spring, he was featured in a special Port of Entry podcast, one of our Moved by Music episodes, and he explored how he was on track to becoming a dentist until finally moving into being one of the most influential players in the in the Mexico and border region electronic music worlds. And as Nortec Collective, they got two Latin Grammy nominations for their album Tijuana Sessions Volume 3 that was in 2008, and they've recently been putting out a string of singles, including this one, Convinceme, with vocalist Ruben Albaran. Convinceme is lively with a really textured combination of folk sonic undertones and then some really fuzzy beats and lyrics that feel almost taunting, kind of playful, but a little dark edge too. And Julia, you can see Nortec Collective at the Front Gallery in San Ysidro on October 16th. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Front is celebrating their 15th anniversary with a bunch of programming throughout October. It all revolves around a special exhibition that that takes place that opens October 7th. But definitely get the 16th on your calendar for this Nortec DJ set. Tickets are free, but they're limited to just 50 people, and the RSVP list opens up on October 1st at 10 a.m. And this will be a chance to check out the art and hear some great music, too. And we've been listening to Nortex Convinceme. 
You can find a playlist of all these tracks on our website. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans and Midday Edition producer Harrison Patino. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks, Maureen. Me siento solo y